welcome to our very first podcast, Royal Ascot, A New Era in Style. And 2021 is jam-packed with gigantic voices in fashion, food and all things nice at the most prestigious racing event in the British social calendar. And this year's theme is sustainability, which acknowledges a totally new age in appropriate style and therefore environmental responsibility. Now, of course, in order to appreciate where we are now and how far we have come, we need to go back in time, right to the inception, the very beginning, and look at Royal Ascot fashion in the 17, 18, 1900s. Now, the racing aside, the fashion at Royal Ascot has always marked the societal chapters through the decades documenting our fast-changing response to a new order in etiquette, groundbreaking technology, and indeed female empowerment, to name a few. And no better leading voice to discuss this fascinating journey through time than Judith Watt, author, writer, educator, and fashion historian. Hello, Judith. Oh, I'm looking forward to Hello, this. Scott. So where do we find you today? I'm at home in, in, uh, in, the, in the Cotswolds near Chipping Norton parked here for a while which is lovely jumping straight in you are such an admired historian in fashion author of exceptionally insightful books on various designers and areas of fashion through the ages and of course head of fashion journalism at central st martin's and we want to take this time judith to delve into your encyclopedic knowledge of fashion through the decades at royal ascot now the fashions on show serve as a cultural barometer, reflecting an era's trends and social norms and an ever-evolving dress code. And this year in particular is no exception and actually feels like a very significant gear change with our theme of sustainability to not buy new and the essential focus for us all to confidently dress with earth and planet protection front and centre. But to go back to the very beginning around the 1800s and the fashion at that time. Am I right in saying that we're enjoying this sort of very lavish, romantic, colourful, sort of exuberant style? The point about racing venues is that they've always been the height of fashion. And actually, the world of fashion, full of women of fashion, not fashionable women, women who led fashion. I think fashion at Ascot goes right back to the 18th century, without a shadow of doubt. Right. If you If you think that... I mean, I've seen in the blurb that men's fashion at Ascot is influenced by Brummel. Uh, I would say that's absolutely true. Um, but it's, it's true in the fact that it's not about showing off. So the idea, you know, of, of Brummel, which, you know, in, who personified the change in men's attire and fashion post-French uh, Revolution, where uh, a man should be a foil for the woman, the woman must shine mm. in terms of her clothing and dress and style. And the man should be the foil for that. And he should not be decorative. He should not draw attention to himself. Right. As, as uh, Brummel said, if John Bull turns round and looks at him, you in the street, you are badly dressed. The races have long acted as a showcase for men and women to parade their most treasured finery. And while the trends may change year on year, the rules seem to stay pretty much the same in lots of ways. But if we're looking at that very early time, the the 1700s, what would you say was relevant about the fashion in this era? It was a a signifier of social status at Ascot. It was a fashionable Mm -hmm. venue. 
that's what it was when the great and the good went there. So it embodies the upper orders of British people. And don't ever forget, I mean, now we call it Royal Ascot, but the royals in the 18th century were, you know, the royal court was known as, the English court was known as the centre of dullness. Really? Oh, yeah. Fashion came from France and the court of Louis XV. So it was rather stodgy in England. But the fashion leaders, the women, of course, dressed um dressed in French fashion, fashion led by Madame de Pompadour uh, and by Marie Antoinette, they imitated that. And there's a crossover between the race, you know, going to a race in the races in Paris and going to the races in England, because it, let's face it, it's all about the horses. It's all about the blood stock. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure a million people will have told you this, but I'm going to tell you this in terms of fashion. You know, because it's very hard for young people to get their head around why horses are so important Mm -hmm. and why people venerate them and the snobbery around them. Well, a beautiful horse, a prime piece of bloodstock, a kind of aristocrat of of uh, of um, horsery was the equivalent to the, the the ultimate sports car. Right. Of course. Um. So. That is the equivalent, and that's why it was so smart. And it was the speed and the adrenaline and the betting that really mattered. There were no cameras. The same in the 19th century. You had to be seen physically. And that's why Ascot and these similar venues were so important. So they were a real opportunity to communicate your your standing. Yes, but do you dress to demonstrate your social standing? And do I? It's more than no. that. It's more. In- do you see what I mean? It's, it's way more interesting than that. Yeah. The nuances of of style, your own personal flair. You know, looking you know fabulous in the latest silk from Paris. And I'm talking about the men, women, exactly the same. To have the what were known as poofs, p o u f s, mm-hmm. that were, were these wonderful headdresses that were created by Rose Patin, the dressmaker to uh, Marie Antoinette, to be seen, you know, it was a, it was titivation, it was gossip. I mean, it was fashion. It literally was fashion. It was the fashionable world, the ton, at play. And you had to be there to enjoy it. Is there a particular period in history of uh, Royal Ascot that you consider to be of a fashion golden age? Uh, I certainly think with uh, Georgina in the 1780s. But I, I think for me, it's the early 20th century because it's, it's, it's best represented. And, of course, it's entered popular culture because of My Fair Lady. And I don't think that that can be overestimated. Most people will never have known, don't know what Ascot is now. The youngsters, I'm talking about the people I, I teach, but if they see My Fair Lady, they know exactly what Ascot mm. is. And then, of course, the you know fantastic publicity that Royal Ascot does now has helped. But I think that that Edwardian era was very, very important, and particularly the George V races in 1910 when people wore mourning. I think that was dramatically significant, yes. And I think that that's a really magic period because you had early film. <clears throat> if you look at the Passé 
newsreels. It's really exciting because everyone can see it. And that's when it became great fun to dress up for Ascot, for ordinary people, people who could go into the other enclosures. It is the royal presence that sets the tone quite often for Royal Ascot's sort of famously strict standard of dress. And of course, the royal enclosure has historically been a fashion fanatic's dream of luxurious style and etiquette, all the way from Queen Victoria in the 1830s to our very own Queen in the 1950s, and indeed Princess Diana in the 80s and 90s, and now Her Royal Highness Duchess of Cambridge looking so resplendent. So who would you say are the key royals that are visually so memorable at Royal Ascot? Um, I would say Queen Mary, Elizabeth the Queen Mother, also Duchess of York, I think that the uh, Queen Elizabeth, Her Majesty, is undoubtedly the most significant figure in terms of dress and elegance. So with our Queen, when she's stepping out, why is her style through the ages? I mean, from the 50s with Princess Margaret, you know, with those sort of slightly more uh, nipped in at the waist and, and you know, the, the silhouettes there. Why, why was that so significant? Why was it significant? She was a young woman. Royals have always led fashion, whether they do it well or not. They always have. I mean, look at, you know, the Duchess of Cambridge now. And, you know, sorry, Ascot is a royal occasion. She's the queen. But if you look at what she wore, she was never extreme. She was always, um, you know, well turned out with elegant attire, nothing fussy, always simplicity, lots of block colour. There's nothing that when you look at the Queen detracts from what is going on around her. She's a foil for it. She's not the centre of attention. She's the perfect foil. It is that thing that I'm saying about elegance. And elegance is being dressed appropriately. You don't want people staring at you because you look ridiculous. Now, you said, oh, you know, Oh, you know, Ascot, what about eccentricity? Well, eccentricity is not great. It really isn't, unless you want a lot of photographs to be taken on you, like Mrs. Schilling. I sound terrible because I actually, I love eccentricity. You know, I love it. You know, that that is the flip side of Ascot. The flip side of English style is eccentricity and self-expression. It's funny that the two often, they really don't mix and they, it's a fantastic mark of tradition and that DNA that is expressed in the clothes at Ascot, but particularly by men, but also by women, the well-dressed women, is just as much an important DNA as eccentricity and dressing like, you know, Edith Sitwell or um, Grace and Perry. Now, this is the perfect opportunity to look at the disastrous and the delightful fashion statements that have graced the track over the last century. And that's all part of the fun, isn't it? Now, not coming from a place of judgment, style, after all, as we've discussed, is very subjective, and it's an interpretation to the trends of the time. How has Royal Ascot become such a fashion runway? I think it's because Royal Ascot sensibly became more egalitarian and Mm -hmm. opens its doors to creativity and new ideas and modernised. Uh, I mean, do you think having a dress code for Royal Ascot hampers the creativity or do you think it actually boosts it? I think it boosts it. 
I think it absolutely boosts it because it makes people actually think about what they're going to wear. Mm -hmm. And I also think it completely boosts the creativity in millinery. People are always much more interested in hats. I think Royal Ascot, by making it a fashion event, has done very well in terms of working with Stephen Jones and um, certainly James Sherwood as well. They've done really well with that. But they've also had to open the doors and make it more public. And if you do that, and if you make it a place where people can join in, then you get what you pay for. So which designers, obviously speaking about millinery, but also with the clothing, have made the greatest impact during Royal Ascot's history and will therefore always rightly be associated with Royal Ascot? Uh, I would say Erdem most recently. Um, mm-hmm. And, I mean, Schiaparelli in the 30s dressed a lot of the uh, women who attended um, attended Ascot, as, of course, did Chanel. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that the English designers were important, and certainly Norman Hartnell in dressing um, the Queen Mother was very important. And you're quite right to talk about the silhouette of Princess, silhouettes of Princess Margaret and um, Her Majesty the Queen and the influence of the new look of 1947 was very important. But it took quite a long time for that to filter down to Ascot. Everybody was living on coupons. So one of those pictures that you show um, that I've seen, sorry, of the Queen uh, in a new look style dress, it's it's later than 1947, but certainly um, Dior, with his changing the silhouettes twice a year, which is what he did, is very significant, and he kind of redefined fashion in that way. Um, so you could actually chart then at Ascot if you were a fashion observer who was dressed in the in the latest fashion and who wasn't. And that hadn't really happened until Christian Dior because he built into his system obsolescence. So if we're going to talk about sustainability, which is what this is about, um, I think it's really interesting because, I, you know, mm. I personally think that in terms of style now, uh, not wearing the latest designer gown would be the way to go to actually revamp or recycle something or to wear your grandmother's frock and have it adjusted or remade or restyled. And to show that kind of sensitivity and longevity would be what would be really kind of fashion conscious. We're talking about the sustainability messaging, but I I guess that you know, at first, one maybe prejudged the attendees in the upper classes and the royalty as being a sort of quite unsustainable bunch, as they may well disregard previously worn and buy new and continue to, to, to wow with new looks each year. But there is evidence to the contrary that these groups actually are somewhat thrifty and adapt at upcycling. What would you say about that? I mean, traditionally, nobody threw things away until the 19th century. Nobody. And even then, you didn't. You know, you would Mm. mend them. You would hand them on to your family. You'd hand them on to staff, certainly. And you would then, they would then go to a secondhand clothes market. So this idea that we have now of throwaway culture is terribly recent. 
I know, and I, I, I know people who, you know, we all, we all do who would be in the royal enclosure. I mean, they're not chucking stuff away. So certainly showing sensitivity to the environment, and you only have to look at the Prince of Wales for that, I think is really important. And younger members of the royal family too. Well, I just think it's very interesting at this time when we're taking, we're looking at what real style actually should look and more importantly feel like. And when we're talking about sustainability and not showing off, but actually probably injecting some creativity and fun where you are upcycling, you are, you know, these pre-loved pieces are having a second life that actually that feels in regards to etiquette and being socially aware of what's happening in the world and sort of quietly communicating your principles um that sort of dials up true style in a in a modern age yes it absolutely does and also it taps into that kind of british idea of eccentricity too because it can be pretty hit and miss can't it but it's very personal if you're doing that it's very much a personal mm. statement. And that, you know, w- within the form- formality, etc., of Ascot, it's interesting, but I do think it's personal. And I think it's the idea of personal responsibility. But, you know, also to have fun with it, you know, to, to wear, to, you know, to wear your grandmother's Ascot frock from the 1950s, for example. You know, but style it with a really beautiful contemporary hat by Tracy or, um, you know, or Noel Stewart or indeed, um, obviously, you know, Stephen Jones. I think that that's quite interesting. So can you help us with the toolkit, I guess, of how best to approach this much more ethical dress code that is to have this new style guide for race goers at Royal Ascot? What do we do? So the first thing that you would do is you would wear pre-loved or secondhand. That's the first thing I think you should do to buy those clothes. So go to your local antique shops, go to your local charity shops, learn to mix and match, dress according to your personality. You can go to Kerry Taylor auctions. You can go to auction houses to buy fantastic dresses and coats for a snip, mm. clothes that date back to the early, you know, 20th century, beautiful handmade clothes in cottons and silks, some of them even pre-chemical dye. What else do you have to do? You have to understand that you need to know about supply chain. But I know that a lot of the designers are working on that. So if I was you, I'd if you were buying new, I'd go to a young designer. Go to somebody who's got that built-in sustainable ethos which is so important. Because it feels very much that actually now the opportunity to start a conversation by what we're wearing based on the fact that we have this knowledge of the backstory of these collections and where that product came from and how nobody was compromised in the whole process actually feels very progressive. I think it's very much, you know, obviously the theme of sustainability is it's an overwhelming yeah. topic for many. And indeed, especially the fashion industry, which has been built, let's be honest, on a on a scale kind of volume perspective where actually it's it's much yes. more about the profit than the principles and the bubbles burst yes. you know it's all become very clear to the 
citizen, the the purchaser, the community, the consumer, that actually their money is their power. And they now need to use that money to invest in brands that can be fully uh, traceable and or you know transparent so it's it's about setting the stage for a common definition of what good fashion looks like well i think good fashion is longevity now i you know and i think it's not throwing away i think it's passing down i think it's cherishing your clothes i think it's Mm. about buying second hand i think it's about wearing hand-me-downs i think it's you know, thinking, actually, I'm going to be quite daring in what I do. Well, I I think, you know, just while we're on it, that perception has changed, whereas we would be, Mm. you know, flipping through the the magazines or jumping onto that social feed or going onto that platform to start to get ideas, feel that sense of aspiration. And actually, now, it just feels deeply out of touch with what's happening in the world. So actually that extreme version of manicured, polished fashion just feels uh, very uh, indulgent and actually a bit foolish because we are in in a crisis. So like you say, it is about those designers that can you know, turn around their mini Titanic. Let's be honest, it's not easy uh, because we've got into a lot of bad habits. But if they can turn around and start to work with a fully sustainable business model, they are the only ones that will survive. But obviously, those gigantic brands, that's near on impossible currently to do that because they're based on a scale game. So it's just about the profit that keeps them to be able to uh, support the infrastructure and the marketing suggest to us that we need to keep on buying so it's it i i believe it's sort of broken and actually it's the smaller much more ethically sound brands that are fit for purpose uh, that will actually be here in five years time and like you say the alternative is to cherish what we have buy less buy better um and upcycle and buy vintage and and like you say really really love those pieces that they become a part of your self-expression and they stay with you and then you pass them down obviously all of these fabulous conversations we're having about fashion through the ages the history of fashion at royal ascot and where we are currently now in 2021 and our theme is sustainability but we don't want to detract from the sense of occasion because there really is still a need and the importance and the thrill and the communication of dressing up isn't there Yes, I think dressing up for people to have a sense of uh, of dressing up an occasion is extremely important and uh, we haven't had it for over a year now but it's it's what mm. it's what fashion a lot of the time is for i think it's really important that people feel that they can that they can adorn themselves and get out of a normal situation and celebrate something and look good and feel good i think it's incredibly important for the human spirit uh whatever they're wearing i agree I might add, I think it's joyful. And please remember, it's about the horses. Just saying. It is about the horses. But I mean, I'm, I completely agree with you. I think it's absolutely that sense of joy and, and hope and how fashion can yeah. be such a strong message that actually we are, you know, very, very collectively, uh, it's that great sort of alignment, isn't it, of all of us sort of visually looking at uh, these occasions to demonstrate this the sense of uh, strength and grit and 
you know getting through it all what what's your experience of the event and the the atmosphere of the attendees and the and the and the royal ascot in terms of fashion event like what what does judith watt enjoy about royal ascot i love the effort that the ladies make it's the idea of the elegance and to go back to the idea of elegance which so many of the really great hats all date back to the 1930s. They're inspired by it. You can see that idea of chic as well. You know, the severity of line, removing over adornment, the idea of good taste. You know, as Diana Vreeland said, it doesn't matter about taste, whether you've got good taste or bad taste, as long as you've got it. Um, that's what matters. On to the hats, just uh, very quickly, just to close, because I just, I'm quite interested in, you know, obviously we're talking about Stephen Jones, you know, mm. Philip Tracy, like who are the, 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 the big players in the millinery space for Royal Ascot? Who are the most memorable, clever, you know, creative mavericks when it comes to really nailing it with a hat at Royal Ascot? I do think that Philip Tracy is extremely good at that. Uh, and obviously, Stephen Jones is a master. But I think Noel Stewart is very good as well. I mean, somebody once said to me, the thing about Ascot and these events is that it's the one time of year when milliners can really show their art and also, you know, make some money. And that's why I think the hat's more important than the frocks, you see. Because when you, it is, an, it, the the level of perfection that is required for a really beautiful, good, successful, successful Ascot hat is, is profound. I mean, it's, and it's, you know, I say artistry, it's actually craftsmanship, which is often much more interesting. Mm. It's interesting about that, the, the thing about proportion and hats as well, isn't it? I mean, all the really great designers started off as milliners. I mean, Chanel and Lombard in particular, they were milliners because the hat was so important. And these huge hats had to fit over masses of hair. Mm because all women's hair was long in those days. And if it wasn't long or big enough, you had false hair, which you'd get from usually from nuns, you know. The, the hair pieces were made from um, novices who would go into convents and best hair came from the lowlands. But you'd go and have your hair cut off, just like Sound of Music. If you look at the proportions of 1910 and 1911 in particular, the big hats, which balance what you're wearing underneath and the streamlined nature of the body, um, the hourglass figure, which you've talked about, which, of course, is echoed by um, that wonderful picture of, of Her Majesty in the early 1950s. You know, it balances that, that sense of proportion. Absolutely. I love that. Now, Royal Ascot provides a needed space in fashion for the marrying of tradition and eccentricity and in the future it will continue to adapt and evolve as it has since the first race in 1711 responding and reflecting society and fashion and showcasing british style at its very best judith it has been such a gigantic pleasure to speak to you to delve into your amazing references and just this incredible encyclopedic knowledge of fashion through the ages and i really thank you so much for your time absolute pleasure it's been lovely scott thank you so much for asking me and thank you so much to the wonderful judith watt and please tune in next week as we discuss one of the most important style communicators, of course, the hats, with world-famous milliner, Mr Stephen Jones. 
Royal Ascot runs from the 15th to the 19th of June. And for all the latest news and information, please head to royalascot.co.uk. We look forward to seeing you next week.